All right, so today we are continuing our series in, uh, in the book of Genesis called uh, God's Grace in the Life of Abraham. And we're going to see some incidents of God's grace today. And uh, the first thing that uh, we want to talk about is uh, one of the worst things there is about grammar school. And there are lots of bad things about grammar school, all right? Uh, but the worst thing about grammar school that I can think of is the grammar school bully. Uh, the guy who comes around and he beats up the weak kids and he takes their milk money and, and he requires you to enter into a, a covenant with him, right? A covenant in quotes, uh, whereby you get to keep your life if he gets to keep your milk money on a daily basis. Uh, and so one of the best things that ever happens in grammar school is when uh, somebody bigger than the bully or the weak kid himself stands up to that bully and, and gives, gives him what's coming and, and frees himself from the bondage of this covenant that has been forced upon him to surrender his milk money on a, uh, on a weekly or a daily basis. But, you know, bullies are, are nothing new, right? We've had bullies for since there have been people. Uh, one biblical incident of bullying happened when Nebuchadnezzar came against Jerusalem, and he required that uh, Jerusalem pay uh, money, tribute money, to, to Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon uh, for a period of time. And as, for as long as they did that, uh, Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't come and decimate them and destroy them completely. Well, at some point during that process, uh, uh, Jerusalem had decided that they had enough and they weren't going to pay anymore. And that didn't work out so well because Nebuchadnezzar came with the Babylonian armies and actually destroyed uh, Jerusalem in 586 BC and took all these captives away back to Babylon. So that's an Old Testament incident of bullying. And what we're going to look at this morning is another Old Testament incident of bullying uh, where we're going to have these, these kings from the north and the east who had uh, come down to the south at some point to the Valley of Siddim near Sodom and Gomorrah, and they had subjugated these kings and required that they pay tribute to them, uh, and that was going to go on in perpetuity unless something happened, and, and something happened in this chapter, chapter 14. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to see this week that we have... Uh, what am I doing wrong here? Okay, we're going to see... Raiding kings, so the raiding kings are going to come to enforce their covenant. Then we're going to see Abram rescuing Lot because Lot gets kidnapped in the, uh, in the middle of, of what happened here with these raiding kings. Then we're going to see that Abram received heavenly blessings from Melchizedek but rejected earthly blessings from the king of Sodom. And then finally, what its relevance is to us. Uh, so let's just go to the Lord in prayer quickly and then we'll, we'll get into the text. Lord God, I thank you for this text. Uh, there is a lot here. It's a little bit difficult to understand, at least the first 12 verses, but Lord, the principles are timeless, and we just thank you for what you give us in your word, something to chew on every week, and we're just grateful for it, Lord. May we learn what you have for us today. May your spirit work in us as we listen and as we preach, Lord, guide my mouth uh, so that I speak your words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so let's take a look at chapter 14. Uh, this is Raiding Kings. Uh, it's too much to go on a slide, so just follow along in your Bibles. Uh, a lot of tough words here, so if I stumble, try not to laugh at me, and we'll, uh, we'll explain it after. Okay, so verse, uh, verse 1. And it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. All these came as allies to the valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. 
In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Shava Kiriathim, and the Horites in their Mount Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who lived in Hazazon Tamar. And the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Belah, that is Zoar, came out. And they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Siddim, against Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. <sighs> all right, so that was a pretty good mouthful. Uh, and uh, so you're thinking, all right, what just happened there? Uh, we have some, some kings going on here who are doing battle with each other. And so let me just show it to you up here. We have kings from north, from Assyria and Babylon, and, and these four kings, Amraphel, Arioch, Chedorlaomer, and Tidal. And then you have these kings of the southern states, Bera, Bersha, Shinab, Shemeber, and the king of Bela, whose name is Zoar. For 12 years, these northern kings, I'm sorry, these northern kings subjugated the southern kings and required that the southern kings pay tribute to these northern kings in the form of money. In the 13th year, these southern kings decided, we're not going to pay anymore. And in the 14th year, these kings went out and they went down back to Sodom again to enforce the covenant that they had made, this unilateral covenant. Uh, and so that's what's going on here. And the point of the whole story is really not who's fighting against who. The point of the story is that Lot was kidnapped. And so that's where Abram comes into the story. So just for frame of reference, these uh, northern kings are up here, and then they're on the other side of the desert here, which, was, which is Babylon. That's where Abram originally came from. This is the route they take. They come through the south. They conquer Rephaim, Zuzim, Emim, the Horites. They go to the wilderness as far as El Paran, come back around, conquer the Amalekites, the Amorites, and then they array themselves for battle here with the five kings. And that's when the five kings flee. Uh, Chedorlaomer takes the goods and he heads north along the west coast there of the Dead Sea and north as far as Dan. Uh, so the first thing I want you to see is that why does Lot end up getting taken? Lot gets taken because of the bad decision he made in chapter 13, right? He or in chapter, yeah, chapter 13, he decided that he was going to separate from Abram, who was going to move to the east and then move his tents as far as Sodom. And now we find in chapter 14 that he's actually dwelling in Sodom. So he continued to get closer to the danger. And so if he had not been dwelling in Sodom, he would not have been taken. The second thing I want you to see is that this was no, you know, petty skirmish among, you know, a couple of local gangs. These were real wars with real armies uh, and, and fought with, with weapons, uh, serious weapons. And so uh, when it says that the the Rephaim, the Zuzim, and the Emim were conquered by Chedorlaomer and his armies on the way down. These are guys that um, Deuteronomy 2 refers to as people of gigantic stature. So they conquered those people on the way down, and then they conquered all these other armies on the way. So th this was a sizable army. And when you understand that, then you understand what Abraham was able to accomplish with a very small band of people uh, as he's going to now respond to the fact that Lot has been taken. 
Uh, it's kind of akin to when Gideon took the uh, 300 men and defeated 135,000 Midianites. And such is the power of God. And so let's see uh, what Abram does and, and how uh, God helps him along the way. So uh, we will read about rescuing Lot now, verses 13 through 16. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshgal and brother of Aner, and these were allies with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. So from this battle that we, that we see here, one guy apparently escapes from the area of Sodom and Gomorrah and he flees and he goes to find Abram who's living up here in the area of Hebron. And so when he gets there, uh, he, he tells Abram what is happening. And so here in this, in this verse is the first time that we see the word Hebrew. So Abram is being referred to for the first time in the Bible as the Hebrew. And I think that is to distinguish him from the Canaanites among whom he was living at the time. Uh, it says that he was living by the Oaks of Mamre. And we saw that last week, that this is, this is the area, Hebron and the Oaks of Mamre. But that's Canaanite territory. That's Amorite territory. And, and so uh, Abram is living among these guys. But the word that is used here, the Hebrew word for Abram's living among these Amorites is different than the Hebrew word that is used for Sodom when he was dwelling in, uh, I'm sorry, for Lot when he was dwelling in Sodom. So whereas you have Abram here who is appearing to be just temporarily dwelling in uh, this land of Canaan among these Amorites, Lot was firmly entrenched. Uh, the, the word for dwell that is used of Lot is much more of a permanent word. And so he's firmly entrenched in, in the area of Sodom where he's living. So Mamre, we said last week, is a person. And he's an Amorite, and an Amorite is a Canaanite, much like a Texan is an American. Uh, so same, same kind of relationship. And so uh, you have Mamre, and you have Abram living among these Canaanites. And so there must have been some kind of treaty uh, whereby Abram was allowed to live peaceably among these Amorites, uh, and, and so I think what is happening here is that Abram is living among them and, and what God said about Abram in chapter 12 is coming to pass, that uh, those who bless you I will bless, those who curse you I will curse. And so there's some kind of treaty between these guys and I think the Amorites are being blessed by Abram's presence. But also I think that we see that there, there must have been something in this treaty that re required these Amorites to go out and fight with Abram uh, because when Abram goes to rescue Lot, he takes Mamre, he takes Eshgal, and he takes Aner with him. And these, these, are, these are the Amorite guys. So, so they go out and fight with him uh, to rescue Lot. So after Chedorlaomer gained victory, we saw he headed up the, the west coast of the Dead Sea, and he goes as far north, all the way as far as uh, Dan. And we can see that on the green line here. Abram gets the news from this guy who escaped, and he's the red dotted line, and he immediately musters his army of 318 people, and he pursues uh, this army, Chedorlaomer's army, as far as Dan. And then he goes even further than Dan. He goes even further north to Damascus, which is in Syria. That would be up here, and Hobah even a little further. 
and we find that he defeats Chedorlaomer and his great army with only 318 men, plus whatever Amorites he had with them. And he's able to, to, to capture or, or recapture Lot and Lot's family and Lot's possessions, and he begins this journey south uh, towards, uh, back towards Canaan with all the stuff. Now, Abram is already a pretty rich man, right? I mean, if, if you have 318 men born in your house, living in your house, who you are responsible to feed on a daily basis, 318 men eat a lot of food, right? So that's a lot that you have to deal with. Plus, you have to be, have these guys arrayed for battle gear, right? I mean, these guys are a trained army, and they have wives, and they have kids. So Abram's got a pretty substantial brood that he's responsible to take care of here. Uh, and so he's, he's pretty wealthy. Uh, he, must have been, he must have needed this army to protect all of his wealth, all of his land, all of his possessions at this point in time. So he's got this army, uh, and now he's returning with the army back south again, and when he gets back to where he started, where he came from, returning Lot uh, to Sodom, he's going to encounter two different kings and two different kinds of kings. The first king he's going to encounter is this man named Melchizedek, and Melchizedek is going to offer heavenly blessings to uh, Abram. And then there's going to be the king of Sodom, and the king of Sodom is going to offer these material, earthly blessings to Sodom, and we'll see what Abram does. The first thing that he's going to do is have this encounter with, with Melchizedek, and he's going to receive heavenly blessings from him. So let's read verse 17 to 20. Then, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. All right, so Melchizedek, uh, who is this guy, right? I mean, he just sees this mysterious kind of character in smoke you can see almost, you know, coming through uh, and, and, and meeting Abram on this, on this way uh, back in, in the area of Sodom. Well, he's the king of Salem. That's the first thing we're told. Uh, Psalm 76 equates Salem with Jerusalem. So it may be that he was the king of Jerusalem at the time. His name means king of righteousness. Uh, Melki is a form of the word melech, which means king in Hebrew. And then Zedek is a, is a word for righteousness. So put them together. Uh, he's the king of righteousness. He steps onto the pages of scripture here with no introduction whatsoever, no genealogy at all. Uh, and you know that, that Genesis is very concerned with genealogies, right? He, this one begat that one, begat that one. This one was the son of that one, who was the son of that one. So that's always important in the book of Genesis. And yet here we have this guy, Melchizedek, who just walks on to the pages of scripture and walks off the pages of scripture with no introduction, no genealogy whatsoever. We're told that he's a priest. But he's not a Levitical priest, right? Because Levi and Moses don't come until 500 years later. Instead, Melchizedek is priest of God Most High, uh, possessor of heaven and earth. And so this is a king who would be uh, above any of these local Canaanite gods who would be uh, you know, worshipped in that area. This is what Melchizedek is saying. This is God Most High. Whatever gods you think there are, God Most High is the God of all. He's above those kings. And so... Uh, even though the king of Sodom shows up first. You see that in verse 17? The king of Sodom went out to meet him 
And then Melchizedek comes second, but Melchizedek talks first because he's greater than the king of Sodom. And Melchizedek offers something, right? He offers uh, Abram bread, wine, and blessing. And Abram, of course, is so blown away by what he's seen from this Melchizedek that he gladly receives these blessings from Melchizedek. And not only does he receive the blessings, but he returns a tithe of all the spoils that came from the king of Sodom's territory and gives them to Melchizedek before he gives anything back to the king of Sodom. We call that tithing on the gross, right? He tithed on the gross. He gave nothing to the king of Sodom. He gave 10% of the king's, king of Sodom's stuff away to uh, Melchizedek. And so if you've read the book of Hebrews uh, very much, you know that the author of the book of Hebrews uses Melchizedek as a type of Christ, as kind of a foreshadowing of who Christ is. And that's because Melchizedek has no uh, genealogy that's recorded in the pages of Scripture, right? He, he appears with no beginning and no end. And in the same way, Jesus appears uh, in, a, in a very literal way with no beginning and no end because he is the eternal God. And so you have uh, the author of Hebrews equating Melchizedek with Christ because although it appears that Melchizedek has no be beginning or no end, Christ actually has no beginning or no end. And so the author says uh, he is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek when talking about Christ because he has no beginning or no end. So that's Melchizedek. And then comes the king of Sodom, right? His armies have been soundly defeated. He escapes through these tar pits in the Valley of Siddim. And, and we're like, well, tar pits? Well, what's a tar pit? You know, tar pits actually exist. There are actually tar pits that exist today. There, are, there is a, a national park out in Los Angeles called the La Brea National Park, and it's, it's got these tar pits in them. And tar pits are the result of underground seepage of petroleum. And it comes to the surface and it mixes with other elements and it just forms this pool of black tarry sludge kind of stuff. And um, they've actually pulled fully fossilized mammoth skeletons out of these tar pits. Because if you ran and fell into a tar pit, it's like quicksand. You can't get out. You're just stuck in there. And eventually you sink down in the bog. Uh, if you're a mammoth, that happens fast because you're very heavy. You sink down and uh, eventually, you know, obviously you die. And so they've pulled out these fully fossilized, ma fully fossilized mammoths from these tar pits. So these are real things, but apparently the king of Sodom knew where they were, right? So some of these guys fell into tar pits. The king of Sodom managed to dodge the tar pits and he gets away. And now uh, after Abraham has done all the heavy work, right? All the heavy lifting, he's gone up as far as Dan, he's conquered Chedorlaomer, brought back all the goods. Now here comes the king of Sodom after he had turned tail and run away. Now he's looking for a piece of the spoils. But, but he, he, he doesn't offer Abram everything, but he offers him something. He, he allows Abram to have the material goods, and this is where the story really gets interesting, and we'll see Abram's spiritual growth. So let's look at what Abram does here. He rejects earthly blessings from the king of Sodom. We'll read verses 21 through 24. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear that you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them take their share. 
So here's the offer from the king of Sodom. Even though, you know, uh, Abram goes north and he conquers Chedorlaomer and takes all the stuff, Abram would likely be entitled to everything, right? I mean, this is when you're the winner, you take the spoils. Uh, the king of Sodom wants his people back, but he allows Abram to take whatever booty there was, whatever spoils of war there, there were. Uh, Abram has a different idea because in verses 22 and 23, uh, we're told that Abram made some kind of vow to God. So apparently Abram said, God, I don't want any of the spoils. You've made me wealthier than I could ever have imagined. Please, all I want to do is go up there, rescue Lot, and bring him back down uh, to safety because he is my relative. But imagine yourself in this situation, right? You've gone out, you've fought this, this gory, gruesome war, you've conquered these people, you've taken all kinds of spoils back home, and you could say to yourself, you know, I, I did make a vow to God, but maybe this is how God wants to bless me. Maybe he wants me to keep all these material goods and he wants me to have all of this stuff or else why would he let me take it, right? Uh, a less mature Abram might have, might have thought something like that, and, and he might have said, you know, forget the vow, uh, I'm just going to take the stuff because this is clearly how God wants to bless me. Uh, but if he took th that spoil of war, if he, if he took the booty, he would have violated his oath to God, and that becomes more and more important to Abram. He, he's, he's taking his relationship with God much more seriously now. And so he's got that, plus he knows that this king of Sodom King of Sodom presides over a very wicked land, right? And so if you are presiding over a wicked land and allowing it to be wicked, then you are wicked yourself and you're guilty of, of all that wickedness yourself. So Abram was not going to put himself under this king of Sodom and say, the king of Sodom made me rich. Uh, Abram is above the king of Sodom, and that's what he's showing with what he says here by rejecting these uh, earthly blessings that the king of Sodom wants to bestow on him. Um, his faith is increasing. He's had this victory. He achieved the objectives of his military campaign. And on top of that, he got the blessing from Melchizedek. And that was more than enough for him. He was very happy and satisfied with that. He's learned the difference between how God blesses and how the world blesses. Um, can you think of somebody else who was tempted in the wilderness to take stuff that God did not intend for him to have at that particular time. Anybody? There was a, a man named Jesus, right, who uh, in Matthew chapter 4 was tempted in the wilderness by Satan. He was hungry, having fasted 40 days. And Satan comes and says, turn these stones into bread. And he says, bow down and worship me and I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth. And Jesus, knowing that he is from God, he is God, and he'll be blessed by God on earth in God's time, says to Satan, uh, man does not live by bread alone, and uh, it is said, worship the Lord and, and serve him only. And, and so Jesus knows where he's from, and he rejects these earthly blessings that Satan wants to bestow on Jesus. And so you have Jesus obviously doing the right thing as, as, he, as he was wont to do, right? Jesus did the right thing all the time. Uh, but Abram does the right thing here too. And that's, that's getting to be a new thing, but it's going to be a, a more common thing for Abram as he goes. What about you and I? Uh, we're tempted to do the wrong thing all the time, right? I mean, we are presented daily with opportunities uh, to do things the world's way and not do things God's way. Um, and then we rationalize a decision that we've made, right? We say, well, everybody's doing it or nobody will ever know. Uh, examples, you know, we, we, we fudge on our tax returns a little bit. You know, we, we steal some office supplies from, from work. 
uh, for me, one of the hardest things I had to deal with on a daily basis as a lawyer was not to overbill people, right? I mean, what's the difference? Who's going to know if you if you wrote down a half an hour or an hour? Nobody knows what lawyers do anyway. So uh, it's it's uh, it would it would be nothing. Nobody would ever know. And so that was a, a daily temptation for me personally that I had to deal with. Are, am I going to do things God's way and let God bless me in His time, or am I going to do things the world's way and take what doesn't belong to me? Um, when we do things like that. We do get ahead a little bit, right, in a material sense. Uh, and, and we may have more stuff, and, and uh, maybe people think more of us because we are wealthier, but, but we're not doing things the right way. We're not doing things God's way. What we're showing is that we don't trust God to take care of us. And so we're trying to figure out how we're going to take care of ourselves. And, and that's the same thing that Abram did when he left Israel, uh, Canaan to go down to Egypt, and that didn't work out so well for him. Uh, so we, we try not to show our distrust of God. We, we try to put our lives in God's hands and let God take care of us his way rather than trying to take care of ourselves the world's way. For Abram, the great threat was in his prosperity, right? Because in his prosperity, that is when the temptation arose, when he's got all this stuff before him. And that's when he decides, I'm going to do it God's way. I'm not going to do it my way. I'm not going to go to Egypt like I did last time and got myself in trouble. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to allow him uh, to do it for me. Uh, so Abram has victory in more than one way here, right? He's got this military victory. He's, he's gone off and, and he's conquered this great army with just a few people. But he's also got spiritual victory. His faith is growing. He's decided he's going to do things God's way. He's received the blessing from Melchizedek, and he's perfectly happy with that. And that's going to set the stage for a most incredible encounter that Abram is going to have with God in the next chapter, which we'll talk about next week. But for now, uh, what are some things that we can learn from this passage? Uh, I know I have five written down there. I've scratched off two of them. I think five is is too many. So we're going to go with three this week. Uh, And here's the first one. God gives victory despite overwhelming odds. Why do you think that Moses included this story in the book of Genesis? When you think about it, it really doesn't attach to chapter 13 very well, and it really doesn't fit with chapter 15 very well. It's kind of an independent story, just kind of standing alone here. Well, remember that Moses wrote the entire first five books of the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all... Uh, 500 years after these events, as these Israelites are about to cross into the promised land, and they're going to have to beat these Canaanites who are dwelling in the promised land. They're going to have to defeat a lot of people, and it's going to be hard. So I think Moses put this story in the book because he wants these Israelites to be encouraged that God can do a lot with a little, right? All I need is a few courageous people to cross that Jordan River and go defeat those Canaanites, and I will be with you, God says. I will be with you, and you will have victory. You, te- you need a lot of courage, you need a lot of faith. And so Abram puts this story, I'm sorry, Moses puts this story in there to help these Israelites with their courage and with their faith. Now, does this story have relevance to us today? I think it does. We are not probably going to go out and fight military battles against anybody anytime soon, but we have battles that we fight every single day. Uh, you have things in your life that may seem insurmountable to you. Uh, It might be finances, it might be health, it it might be a sense of loss, it might be some addiction, whatever it might be, you might find that whatever it is that you're going through seems insurmountable to you. But, But look what Abram was able to do with 318 guys who were willing to go out and fight. God can do a whole lot uh, with a little. 
So if, if you think you have no hope of victory, if your situation seems insurmountable to you, look what God did. Look what God was able to do with 318 people. Your situation is not insurmountable. Uh, but if you think it is, you're probably right in your own power. The, the way that it becomes surmountable is when God is with you. So Paul wrote, when I am weak, then I am strong, right? Because he knew that God was fighting for him. It's when we're at our weakest and we surrender ourselves to God, that's when God does his best work fighting for us. So your difficulties are not insurmountable. God gives victory despite overwhelming odds against you. That's the kind of God that we serve. Here's a second thing. Sometimes doing the hard thing is the right thing. When we saw the route that Chedorlaomer took to go north after he had captured Lot, he didn't come anywhere near Abram. Uh, Abram was perfectly safe and sound, you know, 50 miles to the west of where Chedorlaomer and his armies went north. He, didn't, he wouldn't have known. He, was, he wasn't in any danger. The only way that he knew was that some messenger had escaped and told Abram what the problem was and what had happened to Lot. And so Abram could have said, you know, Lot, that, that stinks for you, but you got what was coming to you. You know, you went to the east, you went down to Sodom, and, uh, you know, life's hard sometimes. And, and he could have just let him go. But Abram doesn't do that, right? Abram does the hard thing, which is the right thing. And, and he musters up this army. He picks this army up immediately and starts heading north and follows after Chedorlaomer. And he, uh, he defeats him. Abram has learned to think beyond himself, right? Self, to be self-sacrificial. He put himself in danger. He put himself in harm's way. And that's a hard thing to do. Jesus put himself in harm's way too for us, didn't he? Jesus did nothing wrong. He was a sinless human being, 100% God, 100% man, and yet he goes to the cross for our sins and is raised from the dead so that if we believe, we will have eternal life. That is self-sacrificial. So we ought to be modeling ourselves after Abram. We ought to be modeling ourselves after Jesus as best as we possibly can. Abram was learning to live this self-sacrificial life. And so uh, he's, he's thinking to himself, you know, this is my relative. If I don't go after him, who will? And we have to be thinking the same way, right? When we see people who we know are unsaved, if we don't talk to them, who will? We're Christians. We're supposed to spread the gospel. If we don't serve people in need, who will? This is what we do as Christians. And so uh, doing the hard thing is the right thing. We have to learn to live self-sacrificial lives just like Abram did, just like Jesus did. And the final thing that I see here is that we are probably not spiritually maxed out, is, is how I would say it. You may have heard it said that we only use a very small percentage of our brain's capacity. I'm not a doctor, I don't know if that's true. Some of us use more or less than others. Uh, but in a spiritual sense, <laughs> in a spiritual sense, I don't know if any of us is completely maxed out. There is probably more that we can do. Now, just this week, we closed on our new building and praise God for that, right? I mean, what an amazing thing that, that we have closed on this building. Uh, and, and we have a building that we're going to go to, and that's wonderful, but we have to continue to go forward, right? We, we can't rest on, on being comfortable now that we have a building. A building is just a building, right? That's all it is. It's a tool that we are going to use uh, to, to go out and to evangelize the world, to serve the world, to, to serve that area and see if we can bring more people to Christ. Um, so it means that we have to go serve people. It means that we have to spread the gospel from there. Uh, we, we just can never be satisfied. And that's how we, we increase our spiritual capacity is to continue to do things that we feel a little uncomfortable with today 
that tomorrow will feel normal and a week from, from today will be, you know, we've been doing this our whole lives is what it will feel like. And so, you know, Abram took these 318 men and he went north. What do we know about Abram? He was courageous and he was prepared. And we want to be the same thing. When we get to our new building, we want to be courageous and we want to be prepared. And so that's why uh, the, the first two weeks I issued those challenges where I wanted us to go out and evangelize somebody and I wanted us to serve somebody who, who we think may not be a Christian uh, just so that we are, are exercising our spiritual muscles or developing our spiritual muscles and increasing our spiritual capacity so that when we get to our new place, we know and we're capable, we know that we're capable of sharing the gospel with people, serving people so that we can bring them uh, to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can spiritually max out if we continue to do these things, if we continue to practice uh, spreading the gospel, serving people, and doing these kinds of things so that we are ready to go when we get there. So what dreams do you have? Uh, what are the things that you think about doing when we get there? I, I think about myself, you know, when, when, when I think about what Abram did here, Abram attempted something really great for God. And I don't know if I've ever attempted something as great as Abraham tried here or risked something as great as Abraham risked here. He risked his very life. And speaking for myself, I've never maxed myself out spiritually like that. Trusted God that much with my very life that I would do something like that for him. But we need to develop that. And so these challenges that I'm issuing, they're for me. They're for you, but they're for me first. And I hope that you guys get something out of them because we all need to be doing these things. So uh, Abram did big things for God and Abram lived a big life. So we need to be dreaming big too. What dreams do you have? Let's talk about these dreams. Let's think about what we can do when we get to our new home. This week we learned that God gives victory, both uh, military victory, physical victory, and spiritual victory. And what he did in the life of Abram was just to continue to increase his faith, right? And, and that's how we increase our faith. We're, we're tested, we lean on God, God brings us through, and our spiritual muscles grow. And that is discipleship in a nutshell. And so what we're trying to do is make disciples, raise up disciples, and, and make disciples who can make disciples. And that's how it happens, through trusting the Lord. That's what being a disciple is all about. God is able to do this with me, and he's able to do it with you. So let's, let's go out, flex our spiritual muscles, increase our spiritual capacity, and uh, just figure out how we're going to bless these people when we get to Garland. Uh, dream big for God. He's got, he's got great plans for us, or else he wouldn't have taken us this far. And so uh, I know we're all excited about what God's going to do with us in our, in our new home. And uh, I just praise God for it. So let's thank God and let's go to him in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your amazing word, uh, which convicts us and, and corrects us and converts us and draws us to repentance at times. Uh, whatever we need for this word to do for us, Lord, we just thank you that you give it to us and, and that you use it to shape us. Uh, and mold us into the people that you want us to be, Lord. As we think about becoming disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ and making disciples, Lord, we just ask that you bless us as, as we dream big, as we think about what we can do uh, to make disciples in this world, Lord, and, and make converts and help people know your love, Lord. If you've experienced it, you want to pass it on. And so we're so thankful, Lord, for what you've done for us. Amen.